for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Today we will be in 1 Peter uh, 2, if you will. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll read our passage. Uh, Father, we thank you that we can come together today in your word. We thank you that your word is life for us. It is truth. So God, today we come hungry, we come thirsty, uh, and we know that your word will feed us. We know that you're good and that you are life for us. So God, today open our ears, open our eyes, help us to listen, help us to see you, help us to know you, and God, help us to, to learn what it looks like to live as your people in a world that is not our own. God, today, um, encourage us, give us confidence in the hope of the gospel, in what you have done, so that we can live as your children faithfully and confidently in this world. We pray this together in Christ's name. All right, well, we will read 1 Peter 2, 11 through verse 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak, ev- speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you will remember from our passage a couple of weeks ago that immediately preceded this text, uh, Peter was reminding believers, helping them see themselves uh, in an entirely new way, that by 
placing their faith in Christ as God's chosen and precious cornerstone of all that God is doing. It's all in Christ um, among all the nations. They have become God's chosen and precious people. And Peter tells them that God did this for them so that, as verse 2.10 says right before this, so that you might declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, God rescued them not only so they would enjoy his salvation, they would enjoy his grace, but so that they, they would declare his grace and love and mercy in Christ Jesus to the rest of the world, that they would make him known. And so as they begin to see themselves in this way, and they begin to live all of life, enjoying and declaring the greatness of God in Jesus with their lips, with their lives, with their actions, with all they do, people will be able to tangibly taste and see the greatness of God in the world. And so as unbelievers hear and see of God's salvation in Jesus, through these people, they too can turn to God and believe the gospel and be saved. And then what what happens then? And it happens again, and it happens again, and again, and again. And so you, you see this kind of snowball effect between the glory of God being declared and the salvation of man happening. So the glory of God multiplies as the salvation of man multiplies. Paul wrote of this idea to the Corinthians. It's become one of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians 4.15. As grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That's what Peter was after. That's what this word is intended to accomplish in them. It's what it's intended to accomplish in us. That we would be God's people declaring his greatness so that man can be saved and God can be glorified. And so now in our passage, um, what Peter begins to unpack is what this actually looks like lived out in the world. What it looks like to declare Christ in the city, in government, in the workplace, and even in the home. Because here's the thing, at this point, after he tells them, after we hear this, you're God's special people. You're chosen, you're set apart. You are God's people. The temptation, I think, for them, and it would be for us, because we see this in our world, we feel this sometimes, the temptation is for Christians to say, well, then let's just physically set ourselves apart. We've got it made. We're good to go. Let's not have anything to do with these hooligans who are not God's people. We're God's people. We're his priests, so let's set ourselves apart, because they're just going to mess us up, and we know it. Let's make our own coffee shops and gyms and schools and clubs and candies. You can get your own Smarties with little Jesus things on them now. God has chosen and set us apart, so let's have nothing to do with the world and let the world go to hell in a handbag. Let's just do away with them. The temptation as God's people is to create holy ghettos where we cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. And what Peter is saying in these passages is that though God has called you and he has set you apart as his chosen people, 
It was not so that you would have nothing to do with the world anymore and physically set yourselves apart from them and detach from society. No, God didn't save you to be the end of the line for His grace. He saved you so that through your new creation life where His Spirit is dwelling in you, living now distinct unto Him in Christ, you're living distinct to His ways, His grace, in His salvation, that He might be known to all. Last time we said Christ was the cornerstone of God's saving work. This time we'll see that Christ is the example that we follow in life. And He came to us and was the most distinct man who ever lived. No one was like Him, but He lived among us. He came into our world, and He did it for our good and for God's glory. And so, today I hope you will hear that though this place is not your home, Peter calls you sojourners and exiles, it is your mission field. This place isn't your home. But it is your mission field. And just as God sent Jesus, so he sends us to live in the world as light for his glory. Peter is uh, pointing to encourage the believers in this. He's pointing to the life and death of Christ. And he's saying, here's what that life and death of Christ, here's the way he lived. Here's what it looks like practically in your everyday life. Here's how you follow him. And so I see at least three distinctives, three characteristics of how Christians live in the world that declares the excellencies of Christ. So, friends, as you, this is very real for us today, as you look around the world and you see the world changing, and we do, it's getting more godless and more lawless and more prayerless and do away with anything that's God, right? Uh, it's getting more and more unfriendly to the ways of God. Um, my hope is that as you hear God's word today, you would see that God, God's plan for penetrating the darkness, God's plan for sending light into the darkness, for making the light of Christ known is, and visible is your life. So three distinctives of how you follow Christ living in the world. The first is good living. Good living. Peter writes, uh, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentile, Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil doers, doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in other words, as God's people, there's just things you don't do and there's things that you do do. There's things that you reject Sinful things, passions of the flesh, he calls them. And there's things that you accept. There's things that you're known for doing in the world. Peter calls them good deeds. And all of it is based upon who you now are in Christ. It's not based upon the world and what it says and what it thinks and what your Facebook feed says. It's based upon who you are in Christ. It's based on the, upon the fact that you are God's people. And so at stake with what you do and what you don't do are really two things that Peter says. There's two things at stake. First, Peter says that souls are at stake. As Christians, we abstain from the passions of the flesh because they make war on the soul. Sin makes war on the very thing that Christ died to save. Christian, think about this. 
do you think about sin in this way with this gravity? Think about the last time you were dealing with sin in your own life. Maybe even negotiating a bit of how close can I get here? Should I do this or not? What's the worst that could happen, you ask? Do you believe what Peter is saying here about sin? That it's not just a matter of making God happy or unhappy. It's not just a matter of keeping the rules or checking off the boxes or being accepted in society or not offending someone or, or making someone think about you in, in a certain way. But always, always, always at stake with sin is your very soul that Jesus died to save. Paul identified some of these passions of the flesh, these works of the flesh to the Galatians. He said, now the, Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Listen to some of these. Some of these that make the list are a little surprising. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, he says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they destroy your soul. Friends, sexual immorality isn't just about what it does to your wife or even to your marriage. Sexual immorality is, it wages war on your soul. Drunkenness, it's not just about what you feel like the next day. It wages war on your soul at stake with allowing anger to rule your life or jealousy to rule your life, at stake with letting envy have your heart. Isn't just what you have and don't have or what others see in you. At stake with these very things is your soul. And just like any war, no matter how big and bad you are, just like any war, when you allow this war to begin and you allow this war to go on, you don't get to determine the outcome. You don't get to tell sin how much room it can have. You don't give sin room and it just takes that. Sin always takes more room than you give it. Friends, sin starts a war in our souls that we can't control. That we, got, we don't get to tell it how far it goes. We don't get to tell it what things it can shoot and not shoot. And so Peter is saying, as God's people, Jesus died for your soul. He healed your soul. Don't kill it again. Live in the world. But don't do everything in the world. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then Peter says, and really even gives greater force to. Christians aren't just known for what they're shaking their finger at or saying no to, but Christians are known, as this whole passage really keeps saying over and over again, they're known for what they do. They're known for what they do. Verse 12, Christians live honorable lives, doing good in the world, doing good to their neighbors, doing good in society for the glory of God. Peter, Peter learned Peter, I keep calling him that. Peter learned this principle from Jesus. At the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, What? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5 19. Paul told the Ephesians that this is the very reason that God saved us. We were in created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works. James said that your faith 
The faith that you have, if it doesn't have good works, it's dead. It's useless. It does nothing not only for the world, not only for God, but it does nothing for you. And so Peter is saying, as God's people living among the Gentiles, is the verbiage he uses, let what you do and don't do in the world, do it unto the Lord. Do it unto God so that the people of the world can see and believe and glorify God. And this is, this is helpful for us. It's helpful for me that Peter reminds me, he reminds us of the purpose of our good and honorable living. Too often I'm afraid that I do good to people, so not that they will honor God honestly, so they'll honor me. I want them to think a certain way about me. I want them to think I'm just great. I want them to think that I'm amazing. Um, Peter even counters that and says, more often than not, if you're doing it for the glory of God, they'll probably not honor of you. They'll speak evil of you. They will speak evil of you. You live this way. You live this way, though, not because of what they're going to say about you. You live a certain way because of what you hope they will say about God. Your aim is not the glory of you. My aim, Chris, every time I do good to someone, it's not so they'll say, man, you are one heck of a guy. No, their aim is so that they will glorify God. Look at verse 22 and you'll see where he ultimately points with all three distinctives. He says we do this and we live this way really because we're just following Jesus. Verse 22, look at, see the same pattern that he's pointing out in Jesus. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He abstained. When he was reviled, when they spoke evil of him, he didn't revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to God. While doing what? Good. He kept doing good. So what Peter is calling us to do, Jesus perfectly did. He abstained from sin while doing good. His whole life was one of doing good. John wrote at the end of his gospel, if you tried to put everything that Jesus did that was good in a book, there's not enough books to do it. And from beginning to end, this is crazy, but from beginning to end, he had people just pointing their finger at him, reviling him the entire time. But he did it anyway. And he did it for the glory of God so that God will be seen. And so what Peter is calling us to do, he's saying, do this. He's saying, look to the one you're following as you do this. He's doing it to say, just follow Jesus. Don't just count on Jesus to save you. He saves you, yes. But count on him to lead you. Follow him in his life. We're not trusting in these things to save us. We're not trusting in what we do and don't do to be our salvation. We're trusting in the one we're following. We're living like this by faith in Jesus. So as Christians, we live distinct. We do good to our neighbors, in our neighborhoods, to our schools, in our workplaces, in our city, ultimately so that people will look past us and they will see the one we are following. They will see Christ. That's the first way that we live distinct in the world. The second distinctive for how we follow our Lord's example in the world 
is, and this one will hurt a little bit, willful submission to authority. Peter says in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, hear it again, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. There's nothing within us, there's nothing inside of us, there's nothing in the fallen human nature of mankind that likes or wants authority. We are children of Abraham who, when told what not to do by the authority of life, the author of life, instead of trusting God and submitting, what did he do? He stood tall in pride and decided to be his own authority. He rejected authority and thereby rejected God and his plan for the creational order. And Adam passed on this prideful, authority-bucking gene to every single person in this room We do not like authority. You look no further than a two-year-old to see this. You're trying to teach them all of life, and one of the first words they learn is what? No! I want it. I'm going to do what I want. No! But friends, hear me on this. Our rebellion against God's authority, our rebellion against authority, is rebellion against God and the very way he made us to live. Authority was designed within God's good and perfect creation for your good, for my good. God created us to live in and under authority. Jesus himself demonstrated God's will for us about authority. First, um, Jesus showed us that authority even exists within the Godhead. Even within the Trinity, Jesus lives under the authority of God the Father. John 6, 38. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 12, 49. I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus came under the authority of God, lived and died under that authority on earth, and lives even today at God's right hand under authority. And this is the relationship he longed to get back to in John 17. I long to come back to this, God. And we might at this point say, okay, so this is our our reaction to this might be, okay, fine. You're right, I would have submitted to Adam. Like, Adam messed up, I will submit to you, God. I will say what you do to good, but I'm not going to submit to man. I'll submit to God, but I won't submit to man. But friends, as Peter's words will show us, Christians demonstrate submission to God by submitting to those God has placed over us on earth. Jesus' life showed us the way in this again. Even Jesus did this. Though he was God, though he came as a man, he willingly placed himself under the authority of fallen men. He did this as a child with his parents. He 
You see this when he was 12 years old? He did this in his ministry. He did this all the way to the cross. Paul wrote the Philippians chapter 2, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. And how far? Listen to How far was Jesus willing to go with this submission? I mean, think about this. I mean, just think of yourself as Jesus. You're God. You're, in, you're taking on flesh. Wouldn't there be a point where you're just like, all right, guys, I tried, but this is getting out of hand. I let you all play house for a while, but now I'm going to end you. I mean, wouldn't you just want to do that at some point along the way? But how far did Jesus empty himself? How far did he keep himself in human form and continue to obey God under the authority of man. Paul said he was obedient to God to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And this obedience that Jesus displayed through his trial all the way to the cross, he could have ended it, he could have stepped out of it at any moment. But he willingly placed himself under the authority of man Not because he was weak or because he was faithless or because he didn't have any other options, but because, as Peter said, he was entrusting himself to God. He trusted God. He knew that God the Father was the authority over all authorities. And he demonstrated that not, this is, we need to hear this, he demonstrated that God was God over all, not through defiance, Not through kicking and screaming and yelling, but through submission. You remember the conversation between Jesus and Pilate? It makes us very plain. Remember that conversation? Remember what Pilate said to him when they were in a room and they're they're private now and it's almost like Pilate is just maybe giving them an out here? What did Pilate say to him? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and to crucify you? What did Jesus say? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Friends, Jesus' submission to his mom and dad, to Caesar to pay taxes, to Pilate during the trial, it was a testimony. He was bearing witness that there is only one authority. God reigns, God rules, he alone holds ultimate authority over all men. No one took it from Jesus. Jesus said this in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge, he says, I have received from my Father. Jesus submitted to human authority willingly to say that God alone reigns. God alone reigns. And this turns our thinking on its head. Um, We hear the leaders of the world, and we, we we hear them get it. We hear them mess it up. We we see laws, but we see all this stuff happen. And Peter is saying, how you silence the foolishness of the world is not by kicking and screaming and, and writing horrible things or creating our own society or pulling out or rejecting leaders. He's saying you do it by continually doing good. Keep doing good in the city and do it as you submit, even under authority. And we do that as Jesus did that. We're entrusting ourselves to God. We do it by faith in Jesus. And when we do that, we live oh so distinct in the world. This turns the, 
people will look at us like we're crazy. But we do this to live distinct in the world because we are trusting the one who is over all men. By God's grace, that's what your submission, your willful submission in the world will do. It will declare God reigns. The third distinctive of Christian living in the world. Endurance and suffering. Verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So, so far, Peter's created kind of a progression of thought with this, of what it looks like to follow God in the world and society. He said that how you declare the excellencies of Christ, which is why God saved us, how you declare that is do good with your life just as Jesus did. Okay, And then he's speaking to a people, of course, who are living in a world with mostly Gentile leaders, likely. And Peter says then, for the Lord's sake, that's why you're doing it, for the Lord's sake, submit to that authority just as Jesus did. So keep following Jesus is what he's saying. And now in 18 through 20, Peter goes a step further because this is very relevant for us because here's a question that we've all likely asked before. Maybe you've asked it since you've been sitting here. Um, what if those we're submitting to are not just? You know, Peter doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the responsibility of leaders. I mean, he does say in verse 14, verse 14, what the emperor's and governor's primary responsibility is with the authority they've been given. He says it's to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Their role is to uphold justice by rewarding just living and punishing unjust living. That's one of the simplest ways to articulate the responsibility of leaders in our country, of those who hold authority in our land. Punish evil and reward good. But here's what Peter's addressing. What if they don't? What if they reward and celebrate evil and spurn righteousness? What if good gets punished? What if good is the arrow of the, the, the target? What if evil gets rewarded? The question is, can we quit then? Can we, do, we, do we get a free pass on this whole? Can we opt out of this whole submission and doing good then? Maybe then can we create our own holy ghettos and just leave the world in the dust? And really what Peter is ultimately driving at here is, what if we suffer in the world for following our Lord? I mean, that's ultimately kind of what I just spelled out that happens when leaders get it wrong, when they get it backwards, right? When evil gets praised and good gets punished and you're doing good, who's getting punished? Christians. And so it's important, though, here, because this is where we kind of maybe think the grass is greener over there kind of thing. It's important that we remember who Peter is writing to and the time that he's writing in and who's leading. It's tempting for, him, for us to think, well, he just must have been writing when they had some great leaders in place. They must have had, like, Ronald Reagan as the emperor or something. Um, but no, from what we know, most likely it was Nero. It could have been Claudius, who was still not great, but most likely it was Nero, 
The very one who would be responsible for crucifying Peter upside down for his faith. That's who Peter is writing to, a people who are under that leadership. He's writing to a persecuted people, and submission to authority was likely guaranteed to bring slander and suffering when they did it in the name of Christ. It was only going to get worse, too. So the issue he is addressing at this time in this letter, it was real. It was difficult. It had teeth. It was a, it was a serious matter. And for us, is it real today? Absolutely. Our nation's leaders are passing laws right and left that celebrate evil and suppress righteousness. And you see this going across the board. And if you, if you look at, if you say anything, you're a bigot. Right? You keep your mouth shut. You keep your opinion to yourself, you and your old righteousness. And so, Christians, let me ask you, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we live? Do we scream louder, hit harder, separate more? We tend to want to be like Peter. Shing! Just draw a sword. Right? But think about this, friends. What if as you faithfully follow Christ in the world, your circumstances only get harder and you suffer for it? What if you find yourself suffering for the one you're following? What do we do? Peter has one answer, verses 19 through 20. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures suffering, sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it? You endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. In the sight of God. Peter's giving us our answer. What do we do? How do we respond? Peter says keep doing good. Keep doing good. And endure the suffering. And keep doing good. You know I I think if we're honest. oftentimes when we find ourselves um, suffering. We start asking. Man where did I go wrong? What did I do? This can't be God's will. We might even turn to God and say, God, I'm following you. I was trusting you. Why am I suffering? We bring to our faith the assumption that suffering can't be part of God's will for our lives. But just just a quick scan of God's word shows that that's a lie. It's not true. Luke 7, 28, Jesus said that There's no man greater than who? You remember? No man greater than John the Baptist. And what happened to John the Baptist? He get whisked away at the age of 100 after he was in a prison cell and he was beheaded for his faith. When Jesus called Paul in Acts 9, he told Ananias that Paul was his chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And he said, I will show this man how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And though Paul's calling is very unique, his work was unique, suffering was not unique to Paul or to John. Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter, 3.12, all who desire to live, how many? What number of people? All 
who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All of them. He told the believers, Paul did in Acts 14, okay, right after he's stoned and they drag him away to kind of get him back in shape, he goes back to the believers in that town and he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Friends, contrary to what we think and hear today, much of it is this prosperity gospel baloney. Suffering is not an indicator that you are not following Christ. On the contrary, Peter says in verse 21, look at Jesus. He was God's perfect servant, yet he was known. The passage we read, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52 and 53, Jesus, that's where he gets the title, the suffering servant. He was God's perfect sinless servant, and yet he was known as the suffering servant. And so what does Peter say, verse 21? Christian, to this you have been called. It is your vocation. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. If you're a sinner following God, following your Savior, you're going to suffer. The sinless one suffered. As you follow him, Peter says, You've been called to follow him even in suffering. It's what, and that's what Christians do, is it not? We follow our Lord. Come follow me was his call. We're following our Lord. And so we look to Christ then and we know, okay, he suffered. And we think, okay, then we're going to suffer. Now we ask, okay, then how do we respond to suffering? What do we do when suffering comes? Again, Peter points to Christ. In everything, he points to Christ. Verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? Verse 23, he did exactly what Peter's calling believers to do. He continued, continued, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He kept carrying the cross. He kept his eye on the Father. He kept going, even in suffering. And so Peter What he's doing here is he's helping you, he's helping me, he's helping believers understand our lives in an entirely new way. Understand our circumstances and how we process all of that in an entirely new way. He's helping us see that as servants of God, living in a world that is not our own, we don't just find salvation in Christ, but we find our very way of life, our very pattern for living. In Christ, we're following Jesus. I love how Paul said this in Acts 17, I believe to the Athenians. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. And so when we find ourselves slandered and ridiculed and suffering unjustly, Not because we were being a moron and we're getting punished for it. No, when we find ourselves standing for righteousness as Christ did, with the grace and truth he did, and yet we are ridiculed and we don't retaliate with the sword or yell and scream in return and we don't run from it and we don't separate ourselves and say, fine, have it your way, but we stay there and we keep doing good. Here's the thing. Not only are we following the example of Christ, but as we do that, 
is part of what Romans 8 tells us. As we do that, God is making us more like Jesus. As you endure in suffering, He's transforming you to be more like the one who died for you. And not only that, our lives are again, they're pointing to the one we're trusting in. When we endure and we stay in it and we endure in suffering, we tell the world we've got something better than comfort. We tell the world we have something better than the praises and acceptance of men. We tell the world, look at the one we're trusting in. Look at the perfect servant who bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we could die to sin and live to righteousness even in suffering. What we say to the world is do what you will to me because by his wounds I'm healed. Give me your best shot. Give me all you got. By his wounds I am healed. I am under his care. I am his and he is mine and there's nothing you can do to take that away. Friends, when we do this, we point the world to the gospel. (laughs) We tell the world about the gospel of Jesus Christ with the very way we are living. And there's nothing this world can say or do to take that away from us. And so as the, the band comes back up, I wanna, there's a story that kept coming to mind, a confession that kept coming to mind. There's a guy, he, he doesn't have the best of names, his name is Polycarp. Imagine that, you've heard that one lately. What are you going to name him, Polycarp? No, that's not going to happen. Um, but he was a bishop uh, in the second century, uh, known for being a martyr. And so you picture this, a very gladiator-esque moment. He's in a, he's in a stadium in front of the crowd, and he's, he's being called upon by the proconsul to renounce his faith. He says, swear, as in cuss, say some nasty words, swear, and I will set you at liberty, reproach Christ. He replied, 86 years I've served him, and he never did me any injury how then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Then the proconsul said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast you unless you repent. Listen to what he says. He says, call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to accept what is evil. The proconsul keeps driving. He says, I will cause you to be consumed by fire seeing that you despise wild beasts if you will not repent. Man, listen to where this guy's hope was fixed. He says, you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour. And after a little while, it's gone, it's extinguished. But you're ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment reserved from the ungodly. And he says, why do you tarry? Bring it. Bring forth what you will, he says. Friends, and then they burned him. They killed him. The fire wasn't killing him, so they stabbed him. He had a hope. He had a longing. He was, he was saying to the world, this is not my home. Friends, this world we live in, it is not our home. But it's where God sent us to be a light. And it living in this world was not meant to be easy. In fact, the hard days are what made us long for that day. 
but by faith in God. That's all Polycarp had. He didn't have anything special. He just trusted in his Savior. He trusted in the one who later said, after you, Peter said, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered for a little while, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. By faith in God, we can look at the world and we, we, we're not arrogant. We can humbly say, bring forth what you will, for I know in whom I've believed. I know the one who I've placed my faith in. In verse 25, we though were once straying like sheep, we were lost. We didn't have this confidence, we didn't have God, but he says, Peter says, but we've returned to the, we've returned to the good shepherd. We know who's taking care of us. And come what may, we are under his care. He is guarding our souls until we get to him. And there's nowhere else we'd rather be. There's no one else we'd rather follow. Friends, Peter is helping these believers see that Christ is your life. Just look at him for salvation. Look at him for life. Look to him by faith. Believe. Believe his promises. Believe he has you. Let us today turn to Christ in faith and believe this gospel that by his wounds we are healed and by his life we live. Let us be faithful to follow him in the world, in front of the world, to the world, to the people in the world so that the world may alone may know that he alone is God. He is good and God saves. That's what our lives declare. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the best shot this world can throw at us cannot take us from the Savior's hand. God, we thank you that you didn't save us and just send us on to live meaningless lives, but you saved us and greatest, gave us the greatest work that man could ever have, making known the glory of God. And that's not just something for Sunday, that's something for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it's something for every day of the week. We can declare that God saves, He is good, and there's none like Him. God saves. Today you can confess and he'll be your shepherd. He'll guard your soul. He'll be the keeper of your soul. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God sent Jesus to die for your sins on that tree. Repent and be saved. Today he can be your shepherd. And Christian, this, word, this message we hear today, it is so contrary to the way we think so God, we come to you and we say, help us believe. Help us with our unbelief. Break us, Father, that we might believe that Christ is our hope. He is our life. And come what may, I just want to be behind him. I just want to follow him. So God, today, just be glorified as we look to you in faith. And say, you are God, you are good. And 
alone we trust and you alone we worship. Whatever you need to do today, I pray you'll do it. Pray on the altar. Come, let me pray for you. Whatever you need to do today, look to the Savior and believe and step towards him. God, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand as we continue to sing.